Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 27th, 2017, and this is episode 1993 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, that means it's time for a listener call show. This is where you pick up the phone, you dial 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, And you'll get a voice message service, and you leave me a message. And the way you do that, ask your question or make your point up front. One sentence to maximum, and then give me your details. I promise you it will go better that way. I've been doing this nine years now almost, and uh, I am a professional, seriously. Uh, just that will also make it more likely that your call will get screened and end up on the air. Right now, I've cleaned out about half the calls that came in since last week, and I did something that some of you are going to be like, why did he do that? If you were like people that like called really quick last week when I said I had a lot of room. Uh, I started at the most recent calls and went backwards. So the people that called like Friday afternoon last week, Saturday morning, whatever, you probably didn't make it. You'll make it on next week. I'll, I'll go the other way next week. I kind of vacillate back and forth. The other way you can call in, you can call the speak pipe. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, look for the speak pipe button. You can mash that sucker and you can uh, send me a message that way too. And uh, we'll try to get you on the air. Same rules, make your point, ask your question up front, one or two sentences, and then give me details. Again, trust me, it will go better that way. So what are we going to talk about today? What do we got calls on? I got some pretty insightful stuff on the student loan debt crisis that's, that's looming over our heads. Different way of looking at it, I really liked. A question on uh, the 6.0 liter diesel motor from Ford that's in my truck. And uh, is that really something you should or should not look to in the future for yourself? A question on storing diapers for, for the shit hitting the fan in more ways than one. Uh, tree planting and septic systems and the considerations that go with them. Something I'm calling the open fascism of the United States Postal Service. I seem to be continuously pissing off post postmen by telling the truth, uh, even when the truth is true. It seems to make them even more... It seems like truth makes people angry, especially when the truth applies to their thing, but not to them as individuals. This guy's not pissed, but I've heard from a lot of butt-hurt post office people lately. Uh, I really have. The skinny on micronutrients for your plants... The difficult decision of putting parents into a care facility. This is something I recently had to deal with in the past several years, uh, and it's, it's not easy. And the consequences of changing words and their definitions in society, a la 1984, etc. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. 
Next up, let's take a look at a year that was the episode from Alex Shrug this week. We ha- or this episode, we have the federal assault on Waco, Texas, and the near collapse of IBM. And uh, Southpaw Ben says, "Apologies, it's the last two weeks here at school. It's crunch time, so I apologize for not being able to contribute daily this week and next week. I will try to contribute at least a few things during this time." So Alex is on vacation from the wiki, but actually working his butt off, which is how people who get stuff done usually are. Uh, taking time off of one thing usually means you're working harder on another. Don't worry about it, Ben. We uh, we appreciate your contributions. Of course, the year is 1993 because the episode's 1993. Notable births this year. Tiffany Trump, the daughter of President Trump and speaker at the RNC convention. And Angus T. Jones, who's he? He's the half of Two and a Half Men. This year in film, Jurassic Park, The Fugitive, Schindler's List, Sleepless in Seattle, and Demolition Man, Dave Coneheads, and Groundhog Day. I pretty much enjoyed all of those movies, at least to agree, except Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle was a terrible movie. I was talking to watching with a girlfriend, I think in 1995 or 4, and I went to sleep. Uh, that's how bad it was. This year in TV, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Alex Shrug says, it's an acquired taste. It really is. I think that uh, when they put that together, like, oh, well, Star Trek fans will just like this. And I think you could like it as a Star Trek fan, but it took some getting used to. It was it was different. It was the X-Files released this year, and Chuck Norris with Walker, Texas Ranger. Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill Nye is a comedian and mechanical engineer, not a scientist. Please remember that when he's lecturing you on science. And Beavis and Butthead, Boy Meets World, Frasier, and the John Stewart Show. This year in music, Can't Help Falling in Love from UB40. An old favorite came back around as a cover. I said this was the era of big covers. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that for Meatloaf. I loved everything Meatloaf's ever done. Uh, Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up from Garth Brooks. A line from it is, Mama's on the front porch screening, screaming out her warning. Girl, you better get your be- red head back in bed before the morning. And Does He Love You, Reba McIntyre and Linda Z- Davis, a, a wife sings to her husband and his mistress right before they die in a tragic boating accident. Strange coincidence. Um, let's take a look at the federal assault on Waco, Texas, because we, we can't not do that one. Contributed again by Alex Shrugged. The Branch Davidians are a religious splinter group established at the Mount Carmel Center outside Waco, Texas. After the death of their founders, David Koresh leads the group. But the power struggle ensues, and a challenger evicts Koesh at gunpoint, murders another challenger with an axe, and then goes to prison. Koesh returns, and then parents of a 12-year-old girl give her over to Koresh for marriage. They had sex when she was 13, and that constitutes statutory rape under Texas law. With this much hoopla going on, the feds get a warrant to search the compound for illegal weapons. They proceed to take the compound like they are charging up Bunker Hill. When the smoke clears, four ATF agents lay dead next to six Ranch Davidians. The 51-day Waco siege has begun. As the weeks pass, the standoff becomes an embarrassment to the Clinton administration. M-728 combat engineer vehicles are brought in. They look like tanks. Attorney Janet Reno gives the order to take down the compound. What happens next is a tragedy. Tanks break the walls of the compound as tear gas canisters fall like rain. A fire breaks out. Children are trapped. 76 people die a fiery death, including David Koresh. It's April 19th. It's all over now, isn't it? My take by Alex Shrugged. Not quite. It's been less than a year since the feds killed a mother and a child in their assault on Ruby Ridge. With the Waco assault, the justification was that children were being raped. Well, I don't doubt that it had gone on in the past, but there were only fears 
but there were only fears driving the feds. A CIA and a CIA, a CYA justification. I'm sure they didn't expect the whole place to burst into flames, but the buck stops here or over there. Bill Clinton blamed it all on Janet Reno. As Rush Limbaugh mocked in his best Clinton imitation, the buck never got here. There was a Texas Ranger post nine miles away. They could have picked up Koresh as he came into town for groceries. No mass murdering required. I met one of the surviving Brash Davidians. She was quite insane but harmless, at least harmless to me. But the free use of federal agents and tanks to intimidate the public inspired man to take, a man to take revenge against the Fed two years later. On that April 19th, Timothy McVeigh brought down the Murrow Federal Building with a truck bomb. True to form, President Clinton passed the buck to someone else, in this case Rush Limbaugh and conservative talk radio. The government intimidation campaign continues. Indeed, um, no matter what you think about David Koresh, no matter what you think about the Branch Davidians, and I'm pretty much thinking anybody that thinks David Koresh is the return of Jesus Christ is insane, um, and no matter what they were doing wrong, the approach they took was completely wrong. And the, the, the blood of those people is on the hands of the people that made the decisions to do what they did. And they seriously could have picked up Koresh when he came down to get groceries. How about this? The guy jogged multiple times a week outside the compound. All they do is wait till he's out there jogging along, pull up, hey, Mr. Koresh, get in the van. Uh, no, no, no. We're going to go in guns blazing. You know what this is? This is the same shit they do to people. You've seen these types of raids for things way less than this. You know, you see something like where... Uh, The thing they did in Grand Prairie, uh, Texas, or actually Arlington, Texas, with the uh, people that were living in this little house, and they had like you know permaculture backyard and stuff like that, and the, the police said they thought they had marijuana. And instead of just showing up and going, hey, it looks like there's marijuana in your backyard, so they could go, dude, that's okra, because that's what it was, they show up with like a SWAT team. Or you see these things where you know, farmers, they, they show up at a farm with, with, with you know, M16s out and shit like that. It happens all the time. There was a, a raid I remember back in the 80s where this company was selling bread. And they were uh, advertising the nutritional benefits of some of the things in the bread in a way that the FDA said made the bread a drug. And they raided a bread factory with guns. They raided Gibson guitars with guns over wood. with For wood, for exotic wood. In this case, they raided somebody that was armed and willing to defend themselves. That's what happened. That's what happened here. And you know what? The thing about raping kids, if that's true, then you need to handle that. Because you don't go having sex with children. You just don't. But if it's one guy doing that, you handle it in a, in a common sense way. As far as being a crazy religious person... People have a right to be crazy religious people in this country as long as they're not hurting other people and as long as they're not pushing their shit on other people. The Branch Davidians wanted their little compound and they were going to wait for the end of the world. And as far as I'm concerned, they should be free to wait there as long as they choose. Unfortunately, that's not the country we live in. And you'll, some of you will know where this comes from. America! That's what this was. This was a prime example of America. And you know what makes me, makes me most sick about it? There were so many people in this country that as it happened and after it happened, were okay with it. That makes me more sick than the government doing it. I expect the state to do things like this. I don't expect the people of this country to be okay with it.
And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack, this is Dylan Angus Bangus on the forums. I just call with a follow-up on your uh, call comment from a couple weeks ago on the coming student loan education crisis economically. Uh, you know, you talked about people not paying uh, their loans right now. There's a, there's a huge number of people out there that are continuing to get more and more loans, and so they're in deferment, which means they're just racking up an interest bill that's increasing the balance. So that, that's a big part of these uh these kids that are staying in school till they're 27, 28 years old, racking up more and more debt, not just new student loans, but also interest on the loans that they've had. So, you know, like having a credit card uh, that's attached to uh, an education that is diminishing in value. Uh, the other part was about the commoditization of education. And, you know, after the three degrees I have, uh, the, the one that I got online, uh, you know, and via distance learning was the most like the real world. Uh, video calls with my team members, uh, WebExes, uh, posting things electronically, and it's much more related to the real world and you learn what you need. Uh, you know, I, it's just another way that uh, the, the education system where you sit in a classroom on a campus, you know, hundreds of miles from where it's convenient, is just dying on the vine. Uh, you know, if I had to tell a kid today what to do, I'd say go distance learn you can do it at night and you have a real job and be making money so that you don't have to take a student loan. Anyway, um, maybe this helps somebody out there that's uh, that age and uh, getting ready to go into the schools. Uh, good luck. Thanks for all you do. And uh, everybody out there in TSP, again, take it easy. Uh, indeed. I, I think that distance learning, call it what you want to. I don't even think it's distance learning anymore. I, I think distance learning is an archaic term that we still use, that, that sort of applies because the school is further away. But I think distance learning is, you know, from the time in, in the world when there was correspondence courses and they sent you like a binder and a, a suggested reading list and you did your work on paper and you mailed it in and it got graded. I mean, that was that was the distance education of the 1980s, early 90s. I remember that. I, I remember actually taking a couple college-level courses that way when I was in the Army because they were willing to pay for it. Um, and it, it, it is nothing like the online-based education today where professors can actually have, you know, they do their lecture at 4 o'clock on Thursday, just like in a, and you're sitting there and they call on students and they can actually, you know, actually grill a student and, and, and get forced interaction, break people into groups, things like that. Uh, with Perma Ethos, we did that with Toby Hemingway's course. We had students broken into groups by Toby when Toby did that course on, on you know, the backyard permaculture stuff. Uh, that, that's available to, to people like me today. So it's certainly available to larger institutions of higher learning. And, and it is more real world. Because let me ask you a question. If you're going to do anything high tech, are you going to do it with a book and a desk? 
looking at the chick next to you, thinking, boy, I wonder if she'll go out with me tonight, and then having a, a protest because you don't like who the speaker is? Or are you going to do it with a computer? Where are you going to do it? So I think that's, that's incredibly valid. I think the more important point here, though, and one that's being missed, is how much debt is still being taken out and how much student loan debt is really not for the purpose of education. Uh, about a year, I guess, a year and a half, about a year and a half, I guess, before I met Dorothy, I dated this girl. Her name was Kathy. And I only dated her for a couple of months, and this would be part of why. She was going to school to be a lawyer. She's going to be a lawyer. Oh, it sounds ambitious. So it turns out she's going to uh, Dallas Baptist University. No problem there, except this is a very expensive school. Very expensive school. She's in her freshman year, and she's majoring in, dun-dun-dun, psychology. She's a psych major from DBU and then applied to law school. And so one day I came over to her place, and she had a whole bunch of groceries there, and she didn't work. And I realized as I'm looking at her taking all the groceries out, it's really, you know, like pork tenderloin and like, Like, how, how do you afford to eat like this? Oh, I just use my student loans. Really? Yeah, it wasn't much longer for that relationship to last. Just saying, but that's going on like crazy right now. And, and you know what? The students doing it are not just dumb Johnnies and Tammies. They're doing what Mommy and Daddy tell them. That's how they get into the loan mess in the first place. It is mommy and daddy that push Tammy and Johnny into the loans. Go get a loan, go get a loan. But once Tommy, Tammy and Johnny get a loan and they go to college and they figure out how it works, and they feel like, you, I can borrow more money than I need to pay for my books. Well, yeah, you can pay for some of your living expenses out of it. And they meet another kid doing it and, and then another kid doing it. and they, Oh, well, I could do a little bit more. And a little bit. We know that's how debt always works. And imagine how much trouble people get into credit card debt, right? How much credit card people, debt people get into. But what happens with your credit card? You go out and charge 500 bucks this month. They send you a bill. It says you owe $500 and some change total. And your minimum payment's 25 bucks. They do that this month. Now next week, next month you go out and spend another $500. They send you a bill, say it's a thousand and now you owe them 50 bucks for a minimum payment. And then you do it again, and they say, now you owe us $1,500, and you owe us $65 for a minimum payment. And you keep getting hit with that. So all along the way that you're committing the self-destruction, you're getting hit with a payment and a payment. And if you stop making your payments, they cut you off. But what about student loans? Well, you don't have to pay on those till you graduate. And you know what? When you graduate, if your first job sucks and you don't make much money, your payment will be like $13. Now, the interest keeps accruing, but don't worry about it. And you're doing this to kids that are 20 years old, 18 years old, 19 years old, 21 years old? And they're, they're watching their cohorts take seven years to get through college? Well, I might as well do that, too. Let's go have a, let's go have a, a, a pity party. Let's go to our safe spaces. Let's go protest a speaker we don't like instead of organizing a speaker that counters that. And then these kids are coming out, and they're 100,000-plus in debt. Half the money's been spent on tuition, sometimes. Sometimes, it's, don't, I know many, no, Jack, you don't understand, there's safeguard. Bullshit, I've seen it, don't tell me. See, I, I can't stand it when people tell me something isn't true, when I absolutely, positively can point to concrete actions where I've seen it happen. That, that's I, I don't buy that. You know, we'll hear from a post office man in a second, but uh, 
Uh, or actually a couple calls down the road. But, you know, when I hear from the post office people, they said they're, it's not what this guy called him about. But what they're butthurt about is I said there's thieves in the post office. And I get like 10 emails that morning, you know, that that show goes out. You don't understand. Most of the time it's just people that package things wrong and stuff gets damaged and falls out and we don't even know. Maybe you, but bullshit on it. We get letters, we get envelopes, and you can see we're starting to take a knife and slit the side of the envelope and slid the silver coin out because the person that sent the silver in for their membership didn't package it in a way that hid what it was. You know it's theft. Don't tell me it's not theft. And that's what I'm saying about this one. You don't understand. You have to take this many credit. Don't tell me you can't game the system because you can And don't tell me it's reasonable to think that 19 and 20 and 22-year-old kids that have been told this is what they're supposed to do aren't going to game that system and get themselves into terrible debt situations and keep taking more and more debt when they don't even get a bill for it for four or five years and are told, don't worry, the bill will be 20 bucks. And you'll have a job and a cell phone and a red car or convertible. This thing's going to explode and it's going to unravel in a way you can't imagine. It's coming, but keep defending it, those of you that do. And the system itself is archaic, outdated, and dead. We don't need these giant buildings. We don't need these giant halls. We don't need all these amenities. We need an education for people to be able to get into a career as quickly and efficiently as possible. But we're not going to do it until reality strikes. And when it strikes, it's going to strike hard. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Tyler in Ohio. I had a quick question for you. Uh, looking at diesel trucks and wanted to get your opinion on the 6.0 liter uh, Ford engine. Uh, I know they had some issues earlier, but if memory serves me correctly, I think you have one. Uh, and just want to know your opinion as an owner and as a uh, mechanic. Uh, thanks. Love the show. The 6 liter power stroke from Ford is the victim of unintentional, malicious slander, I guess is the best way I could put it. So, motors develop reputations today more in forums than any other place for being good or bad. Um, and then, you know, Tommy sees it and he tells his buddy Danny and his buddy Danny repeats it. So then they, they, the, the forum thing that's seen online goes offline, word of mouth, and then somebody else posts in a forum as though it's God's honest truth. And has no real direct knowledge of it. But if you trace it back, you'll find that there's a truth there or the, the thing would have never started. And the truth is either a, a, a malignant truth, i.e. somebody wanted to make something look bad so they lied. And, it, you know, it's basically corporate sabotage and it does happen, though it's kind of rare. The other truth is usually there's something to it, but it's been completely mischaracterized. That's the six liter Ford Power Stroke. Okay, it is actually one of the most reliable and best motors that Ford Motor Company's ever made. Uh, well, the early ones had problems, but the new they're pretty much the same motor, okay? And mine was made in 2004, and the truck's 2005 model. It's got 140,000-plus miles on it, and I've had some work on the truck, but none on the motor. Motor's just fine. Pull strong. It'll be, you, you hook something up to it. It's either moving or you're ripping the, 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 the frame apart on it. It's not going to give up. Incredibly strong. 370 horse, I think, is what the thing turns out. Got that low-end range of a diesel. Damn thing will do 100 miles an hour on the highway and rides like an old Cadillac while it's doing it. You know, the old-school 1970s model Cadillacs do 100 miles an hour just floating down the road like a boat. That's how that damn truck runs at 100 miles an hour. Don't ask me how I know, but I know. So so where is the truth? Where does it come from? 
Well, you see, every Billy Bob and Jim Boy and Jim Jack and, and Bubba that buys a diesel truck today, first thing they want to do is make it better. So the first thing they do is they go online, they start looking for ways I can make my truck better. And they might throw a CB in it or something like that, but they want more power. As though 370 horsepower is not enough horsepower out of a freaking diesel truck. They want more. They want it to go faster. They want to have more range. They want to have higher acceleration. They want day one. So they find out about a thing called chipping. And chipping is where we can get, you know, microchips and processors and things that we can plug into that motor that change the programming as to how that motor is supposed to run so that we can make it give us more horsepower than it was set to do by the engineers in the factory. Some motors respond okay to this. Some motors it causes real problems with. This is not a good idea. And I'm going to hear from angry people again. This is not a good idea for any motor. You can eke a little more horsepower out of some motors, but it's really not that beneficial. It doesn't really do anything good for the vehicle. Uh, you might cut you know, a tenth of a point off of your quarter mile speed or something like that. You might increase your tow capability as far as the horsepower or your torque by a couple pounds. But you're not going to really get anything of any major gain out of it. I'm going to have Stephen Harris listen to this one as a former engineer for Chrysler so he can, uh, he can add on to it uh, for a segment in one of the listener council shows because I'm sure he'll back this up. But this is the reality. The motors that are in our cars today are very highly engineered motors. These are not the motors of the 60s and 70s where they were, they were actually fun and beneficial to play around with. And most of the things we did back then, we didn't do electronically, we did it mechanically. We overboard the cylinders, we upgraded the cams, etc. We did valve jobs, things like that. That actually could increase the horsepower of the motor. Because we're actually increasing, if you're overborn, you're increasing the engine's displacement. Okay, But because of the advent of computer technologies, we can actually tell the motor to perform differently than the engineers designed it to perform. Here's the problem. These engineers are not people that do not know what they're doing. They're not reducing the horsepower in your motor so that it will, you know, Uh, it, it, it will cost you the ability to tow more because what are all of the truck companies always doing? We tow more, we haul more, we, you know, we carry more, we have more. They're actually trying to get the absolute most out of that motor that they can get with reliability, efficiency, and mileage included. And the motor has been set up mechanically to work with the electronics to be optimum the way that they put it. And when you change it, inevitably, something gets worse. Now, some things on paper may get better, but other things will get worse. You've gone into, Think of it, you've taken an elaborate computer program, and with no understanding of what the, the thousands of lines of a code say, you went and changed a couple lines of code from a cut and paste that somebody gave you off the Internet. That's what these chip boxes and stuff are in diesel trucks. It's code that you've cut and pasted in the form of taking a box and plugging it in. And when, as I said, some motors are okay with this. Some motors get really bad with this. Some motors have real problems. Some handle it better than others. The 6-liter Ford Power Stroke has lots of problems if you mess with it. It was very specifically set up with very specific parameters to run a very specific way, and everything in that motor is tuned to that programming. So if you buy an F-250, an F-350, etc., with a 6-liter 
uh, Ford diesel in it, the only thing you have to do is, one, make sure nobody's screwed with it like this already. Make sure it's not chipped and hopped up and whatever. And leave it alone and do the routine maintenance. And you'll be happy with it. Again, I bought my truck with about 78,000 miles on it. I have over 140,000 miles on it now. The truck is, what, 2005, 2000, it's 12 years old. It runs like the day, I, it actually runs better the day I bought it because I did have like some of the stuff cleaned out on it and all. It's, it's a great truck. And, and again, the stuff I've had to have work done on it for, things like the air conditioner and stuff like that, the motor's never been a problem. Just change the oil. You know, change the glow plugs when you're supposed to, change the belt when you're supposed to, and go on with life. I had more problems out of the horn than the motor. But, again, I didn't go dilly-dallying messing around with something that was already optimized. Mr. Harris, I'm going to love to hear, hear what you have to say about this. Hi, Jack. This is Robert from Utah. I just have a quick question on what is your approach to storing diapers for an emergency situation? Details. I was in a conversation, and it came up, and it got me thinking, what is the best way to go about storing for an emergency when it comes to infants? I currently do not have any, but my wife and I are planning on having children in the near future, and I was just wondering what the best approach, whether you would just save whatever size they happen to be in and cycle through them, or whether you go with a cloth diaper or any other option that I'm overlooking. Thank you for all you do. Have a great day. Well, let, let's take this two different ways. We're going to compare it to food, and we talk diapers and food is the same thing. I know this is going to sound bad. It's going to sound worse here in a second, but, but just hold with me. What do we say about food? Store what you eat and eat what you store. Okay? So diapers are storable, but they're bulky. So when it comes to peacetime, if there's such a peacetime when it comes to tra changing code brown diapers, um, you never buy small amounts of diapers. We have a granddaughter here all the time now. My, my wife buys a lot of diapers to help the kids out. And uh, we buy big bulk packages. And if you're staging it, you kind of kids kind of grow on a pretty consistent schedule, at least with diaper sizes. But you know, you, you probably are a couple months out usually, except in the very, very beginning, from changing from one size to the next anyway. So my view is, is you probably have about 30 days supply of diapers as just a matter of course. Uh, with kids. That way, when something goes wrong like it would typically go wrong, and it's a week-long problem, you, you, you don't really ever have a problem. And as the kid starts to fill out the diaper, and you're three weeks out, just the next time you go to the market, your next batch of diapers, you buy the next size up. It's, it's that simple. Now, for the shit hitting the fan, actually hitting the fan, not from Code Brown, but from the, you know, the end of the world as we know it type scenario. Again, I'm not big on preparing for these things. I'm really not. But what you need, you, you hit it right at the end, is cloth diapers. And, and the reason I really chose to do this one, I said just, I, I thought about just sending you an email because it's such a simple answer. But if you're really worried about long-term disruptions, this is a good topic to explain reality. The disposable diaper, the Pampers, the Loves, etc., are the following. A luxury of modern society. That's what they are. If you went back to 1800 and told somebody something stupid like, hey, I want disposable diapers, they'd have looked at you cross-eyed like you were, like in the words of Sam Elliott, you're a special kind of stupid, aren't you? Because the concept of being able to throw something away 
several times a day and get rid of it, let alone replace it, would have been foreign to them because they didn't have the modern technology and manufacturing capabilities that we have today in the year 2017 and that we've had since. I, I would reckon that the disposable diapers probably go back to the 1940s or 50s being a thing and probably weren't a big thing in the 40s and 50s, became a big thing by the 60s. And, 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 and I'll say this. I, I hate that they fill up landfills and all, but thank God for it because it sucks. And I refuse. I, I told my wife, you know, you handle code brown and code yellow. I, I'm done with that. I never started and I'm not starting now. I, I don't do diapers. Um, if I had to, if we had a baby, I would do it. But yeah, granddaughter that you watch all day, you, you take care of the diapers. And she's fine with that and I'm fine with that too, as you might imagine. But, but long term, when you're looking to store anything long term that's something that's disposable, It doesn't matter if it's a diaper or whatever it is. You have to understand disposability is a luxury of modern society. And from an ecological standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to replace as much disposable stuff as possible with permanent things. But then you also have to look at lifestyle. I'm telling you right now, I don't want to change diapers, but changing cloth diapers and washing them, I, especially if you imagine the days before a washing machine, Ooh, you, you wonder how we even built the population up the way we did in this country from the 17th through the 1800s. But uh, it, it is reality. And, uh, you know, kids need someone to take care of them at that age. I also believe, I, I really believe that in the past we probably toilet trained kids a hell of a lot faster than we do today. I'll just throw this little thing at the end. I remember back in the 80s, I used to watch, as a kid, I used to watch 2020. I'm talking like... Uh, you know, like a tween. I used to watch 2020. I guess I was always different than most people uh, of my of my you know equal age. And I remember an episode about this. I think it was uh, what's his name, uh, Stossel, that did it, or if there was somebody else back then that kind of looked like him. I don't I don't know. Um, but uh, they had this method of of diaper training, and they said that any child two years of age, and honestly younger, but two years of age or older, absolutely it would work on. It was called it was called naked in two hundred dollars, and you did it on a weekend. You started like Friday night, and by the time you went back to work son, uh, Monday morning, your kid was toilet trained, and it was exactly what it sounded like: naked and two hundred dollars. And they had figured out two hundred dollars was the average cost of having your carpets cleaned, and you just. Took the diaper off the little kid and let them run around the house naked for, for, for two and a half days. And by the end of those two and a half days with stuff running down their leg and all they didn't like it, they would, they would use the bathroom. I don't know if it works. Never tried it. But just something I thought I'd throw out there. I didn't even Google it, but I bet you if you Google it, you'll find out if it's still a thing and if it works. Uh, but again, when we look at preparedness, anything that's disposable, we always need to think of it that way. It is a luxury of modern society. And again, we have to look at the ecological consequences and say, is the luxury worth the consequence? Um, with diapers, it is to me, but when I think about the millions of them going to landfills every day, um, I, I worry. I worry that maybe it's, it's not long-term. But uh, it's not, of all the things in the world that I need to solve, it's pretty low on my list. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Julia from Pennsylvania in the Lehigh County area. The reason I'm calling is I have a question about planting trees around a septic system. The details are, our property has a septic system with a tank and a drainage field. And I'm interested in using as much of the property as possible to create a food forest with trees and other perennials. How far away 
And what kind of trees would you plant away from that drainage field? Because I don't want to ruin my septic system, but I also don't want to have just a sparse open land there with uh, not taking advantage of our land. So I appreciate your show and everything that you do, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. This is, this is actually pretty simple. And it, it comes with very few exceptions, and one of those exceptions would be a willow, okay? Um, trees in general will, their roots will go out as far as their canopy. So if we're going to put up a tree that eventually is going to have a 20-foot canopy, in other words, you're going to have your trunk in the center, and it's going to extend 10 feet out both ways from the, from the uh, tree, We need to be at least 10 feet from the edge of the septic field and probably more like 13 or 14 to put a little bit of insurance there, okay? Now, there is something that you can do. If you can get a subsoil or plow or single-line plow and you got something big enough to pull it that will basically prune roots, you can plant them a little bit closer and for some insurance, like once a year, You drop that thing in the ground, and you probably don't have this in a suburban situation, but I'm just giving it to you as an option. And you just drag that thing through, and as those small roots are getting out there, you just cut them off. And you don't have anything to worry about. Because the one problem here is trees will, when there's all that nutrient and all that moisture there, especially if they're nutrient or moisture deprived, they'll put more energy to send those roots out into there. So I would say you want to keep them large trees, between 15 and 20 feet off the edge of, the, of the, the leach field. Now, smaller trees, dwarf trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, you can go much closer. With short-rooted perennials, like short-rooted shrubs and things like that, you can go into it. So one strategy could be to angle kind of a food forest-type development system with an herbaceous layer, if you can get the solar aspect right, out into your field and then back up a little bit more toward the edge with a shrub layer, and then back up from there with a dwarf tree layer, and then back up to where you're really out and away from it with your, your you know, overstory layer. And that can work too. But you can't plant trees in the leach field. It will screw them up, and things like willow trees need to be well far and away because they'll send roots out hundreds of feet. Uh, there's, you know, there's, the, there's plenty of that going on. Tropical figs, you're not going to be growing, but tropical figs are another tree. You know, there's just pictures of them with their roots. You know, the tree's 100 feet tall, and the roots are 300 feet long, crawling over old remains of, 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 uh, of ancient, you know, sites and things like that. So there are a few trees, but your fruit trees just aren't going to do that. One of the things you could do is stick to your semi-dwarf um, and dwarfing rootstocks on your, on your fruit trees and things like that, and then just... The other side of it is, is if we, we prune and maintain that canopy at, let's say, a 10-foot canopy, our roots are going to go a little further but not a lot further. Trees do a really good job of balancing things out. So it's just important to think about the eventual size of that tree, the roots corresponding to that size, and then how far out that will extend. And if they get a couple feet in, they'll keep going. So you got to think about that. And, you know, there always is that option of coming up with some type of a root pruning uh, routine once a year or twice a year, uh, even if it's taking what's called a whomper. Uh, a lot of people don't know what a whomper is. It's basically a big pipe with a big, heavy, single, flat blade on it. Usually it's about a foot wide, a foot, a foot long, uh, deep, I guess. It, it'd only be about a quarter, like quarter-inch plate steel, 
And what you use it for is actually burying cable. And you want to do it, you know, this has to work in like sandy soil, clay soil, things like that. Rock, this will not work. And what you do is you just start hammering it into the ground. You pick it up and you drop it like a shovel and you drop it and you drop it and you drop it until you get it deep down in and you rock it back and forth. And then you take a step forward and you do it again. And if you're in the right kind of dirt, it's amazing you know, how quickly you can keep doing that. And when you rock it open, you end up with this, looks like a, it looks like a plow. It looks like somebody ran through with a plow and just opened it up into a furrow. And you take your cable and you stick it in that crack, and then you just take your foot and step it closed. And you can bury cable a foot deep that way. I used to do that when I did CATV work. Um, and you could do something like that, you know, get or build one of those. And wherever you find a root, if it won't cut with that, you just pull a, a sawzall out and zip it. Because your roots are going to be – your lateral roots are going to be relatively shallow. They're going to generally be in that first foot of soil as they venture out. And then they'll, they'll put down their own deeper roots once they get out. But those lateral extensions are going to be pretty shallow. So if you can do anything to kind of put a, a root check on those suckers – Because, for instance, what Mark Shepard does is exactly what I started out with. He has these, and they call it alley cropping, where he has trees, and he has pastures in strips between the trees. And uh, so once a year, he runs a subsoiler around just outside the canopies of the trees and just prunes off all those roots, and that keeps the trees from advancing into the pasture, and the pasture stays open, grassy pasture. So you can emulate that on a small scale. So I hope that helps. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one's going to be on what I call postal fascism. Hi, Jack. You called for some insight on mailboxes. Well, I've called in before about the Amazon delivery and post office, so I might as well handle this question, too. What that letter carrier did is completely within regulations. Now, with that being said, I don't do it. But anything that's put in your mailbox that is not postal related, uh, a letter from your lawn clippers, I've seen those. Um, the local Chinese restaurant goes around door to door and puts all those little flyers and stuffs one in your mailbox. Um, anything that doesn't have a stamp doesn't belong in there. And we are instructed to pull it out. Now, like I said, I don't do it. Because, like you said, I know they purchased their boxes. It doesn't bother me. But something that you have to take into consideration is we've built an entire infrastructure now around this nation of delivering parcels on Sundays. So in those areas, like when the guy said it was an Amazon delivery. Well, Amazon asked that we do this, that we go ahead and do it. So we did it. And now they're yanking that back. You know, they've replaced it. They're doing it themselves. Well, we're probably a little bitter in those areas. So the supervisors could have instructed the carriers, you see any Amazon parcels in there, yank them out. Bring them back. Now, I'm going to tell you folks how to get around this. Purchase another mailbox. Put it beneath the first one. Label the top one explicitly, U.S. mail or mailbox. Label the next one beneath it. Parcels, all carriers. You do that, you differentiate that you You have a mailbox, but you also have a separate box for all carriers. He won't touch anything in that second box, or at least he shouldn't. If he does, then call the post office, get your parcel back without having to pay postage. All right, folks, I hope that helps. Um, have a great day. Bye. So I, I want to start out with the person that called in. Mm, everything I'm going to say doesn't apply to you because you don't do this, okay? But here's the reality. And you touched on it. 
So what you're telling me, and I'm not disagreeing with whether or not this is to code, but this goes to the heart of something I've said so many times in my life, I feel like I'm going to explode if I have to keep explaining it to people. Just because something is illegal doesn't make it wrong, and just because something is legal doesn't make it right. And what the United States Post Office is saying, and this is fascism at its finest, because it's supposedly self-supporting and all, but it has government controls and government... It, the, the Post Office is a fascist system. It, it really is. And it had a place in time, and I think we're, we're, we're kind of seeing that it's not necessary anymore, and you touched on that too, and I'll get to that in a second. But here's what you're saying to me. I take my ass to Home Depot, and if I buy a really nice one, I spend $100 on a freaking mailbox. I bring it home and I pay a freaking bricklayer a couple hundred bucks to brick it in and make it look nice and fit my HOA so I don't get a nasty gram from the freaking HOA because my mailbox doesn't look right. And it's sitting there so you can put mail in it and I don't own it. That's what you're telling me. I don't, because if I own it, I have rights to do whatever I want to with it. But here's how this started. The, the, this is an example of good intentions gone to shit. And it is, it is bitterness because the post office sees that it's, it's on its way out as a dinosaur because this shit didn't happen in the 80s. People put shit in mailboxes in the 80s all the time. I never heard of this happen in the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s. Touched on with Amazon, right? Yeah. Let me tell you this. And again, it doesn't apply to the guy that called in or anybody else that has his philosophy in this. If you come to somebody's mailbox as a mail carrier and there's an item in there and you know that item does belong in there because you know it's for them and you take it because you're supervisor or you are bitter or whatever, you're a shitbag. You're a shitbag and you shouldn't be doing your job because you're not qualified to do your job. Because one of the qualify qualifiers to do any job where you have authority over other people's lives is enough common damn sense to do what's right even when regulation says you should do something else. And those of you that do it, if any of you are listening, just don't listen to me anymore. Just don't, go away. Because if you would take somebody else's property because you legally can, when they've done no harm to you, I don't want you. I'm dead serious. This is bullshit. I'm not saying the guy's wrong about his interpretation of the, of the law. I pretty much said that. And as far as you want me to go out and spend more money to buy another box and label it differently so I can use my box my way, Bullshit. And where it came from initially was the protection of the mail. So that people could be confident that somebody wouldn't steal their mail. So what the government says is, well, since that's federal United States mail, if someone steals a box of business cards worth 50 bucks out of your mailbox, it's a federal offense and they're in deep shit. Well, that was all well and good when we could send things through the mail and they didn't get stolen by postal employees. But now they do. In fact, I'll tell you a big reason, and maybe some of you guys in the post office will open your ears and understand this. One of the big reasons shit gets stolen going through the postal system now is if you send something through the postal system and it's not sent like any kind of like insured or registered party, something like that, it goes through common carriers that hire whoever the hell they want. And, and, and I know of people getting shit stolen out of their mailbox all the time, and the sheriff shows up and takes a report, and they find nobody does anything. Nobody, I mean, if the guy's dumb enough to get caught, oh, sure, the feds show up then and they want their extortion money for making a bust. But this protection belief that just because it says U.S. mail on it, now it's protected by federal law, and that's why my mail's secure. I'm sure we can find other ways to secure our mail. Those of you that are postmen that see stuff like this all the time and go, that's not mine and I'm not going to take it, 
thank you. And it's people like you that will probably keep your organization around for longer than its, uh, than its expected lifespan. I'm telling you, yeah, Amazon is going to replace you. Amazon is building a new postal system. Um, they are. That's what they're doing. And they're doing it in a way that, frankly, it makes a lot of sense, and it's helping a lot of people build their own thing. Uh, it's not that I hate the post office. Again, there's certain things that our government's done over the years that I don't like thievery, and I don't like theft, and I don't like coercion, and I don't like taxes. Um, but the post office is in the benign category. But it's getting worse and worse and worse over time. The, the things that I'm talking about, theft out of the mail, taking shit out of people's mailboxes and stuff like that, whether, you know, whether it could be done or not, it just wasn't. And it's done a lot today. And please do me a favor right now if you work for the post office. If you're going to write me an email talking about the packaging, it's important they pack. I know it's important they package it right, but the main reason is because people in your organization, whether it's you or not, are stealing shit. They're stealing shit. And I'm saying this not because I want to beat up on the post office, because I want to reach everybody else that sends valuable things to other people. You better package the shit out of stuff. Not because a, sh a sorting machine is your enemy, because somewhere along in the chain, I don't know who, but we're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in that chain, there are thieves in that chain. And we've had it happen. One more story before I move on to this. Many, many years ago, 2010, we did a run of uh, Swiss Army Trekker knives. And they were uh, engraved with VAL, the, the VAL logo and TSP 2010 on them. We had 200 of them made. They were being sent to our gear shop at the time, that at the time was run by Tiffany and Rich Rockwell. And it, when it got there, there was 150 instead of 200. 150 instead of 200. They were sent U.S. priority mail, United States Post Office. And you could see where somebody took a knife and cut open the box, and there were four cases of 50, removed one case of 50, shoved some shit in there to make up the space, and taped the box up closed. Well, we filed it on the business insurance, and we got it paid for, and we got the 50 replaced. A few weeks later, somebody sends us an email and says, Hey, I think I know where your knives are. They were being sold on eBay by an idiot. By an idiot who put the rare TSP 2010 variety. They didn't know how rare. There were only a two, well, actually, by this time, there were 250 in existence. And the 50 they had were the only 50 in the world that weren't in the hands of people in this audience who bought one. So, Utah State Police and the federal government got in touch with uh, our people in California because the, the stuff was for sale in Utah, and they ran a sting. And they took down four, four, four employees of the United States Post Office. That was in 2010. Don't tell me there aren't thieves in the Postal Service. Because when you do, you're telling me something that I know is wrong. And I, I say that to all of you. And I'll tell you the biggest thing you can do when you're sending anything of value, put insurance on it. Put insurance on it. It never touches a common carrier. If it's worth $100, bucks, you put $10 worth of insurance on it, you've still prevented it from getting in the hands of a, car, a, 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 a common carrier. Now, if they did what they said they do, you shouldn't have to worry about it. But you do have to worry about it. You've been warned. If you're going to pay for the MSB and silver, you need to be not be able to tell what's inside it. It needs to be like wrapped in cardboard in a stuffed envelope or something like that. Not for my benefit for years. I've never actually I've never pushed back on somebody that, that, that sent it to me and got stolen. We've always just processed their order. But I'm not going to do it anymore. 
because uh, I put enough warnings out about it. Sorry for the rant. Let's move on. Jack, this is a fertilizer-related question for someone on the expert council. My name is Jason. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and the question is related to micro or trace nutrients. I've noticed that a lot of the micro uh, trace nutrients like boron, molybdenum, um, manganese, things like that, uh, really aren't listed on any of the uh, fertilizers that I would find at some of the big box stores and even some that I've found online. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to get uh, or to increase boron and iron and, and micronutrients like that without having to go the route of a sulfate or some other industrial salt carrier mechanism for the nutrient that I'm looking for. Any help you can give there would be fantastic. Love what you do. Thanks for everything. Thanks. Bye. Okay, I actually have a perfect article for you that I wrote over a year ago, and it was uh, published on the Nine Mile Farm blog. I really should republish it with a small update to it that uh, I will include in, in today's uh, uh, review. And uh, the article was entitled, How to Make Your Veggie Garden Go and Blow the Easel Easy Way. And I wrote this because I saw so many people struggling that were trying to do everything naturally and organically, And you can do it naturally and organically, but that doesn't mean no inputs, especially when you're getting your garden started out. And I gave a list of products in it, and I, I still recommend all the products, but the one I've kind of changed the form of. You've heard me talk about all of these. The first one is Dr. Earth Premium Gold Organic Fertilizer, and it's a 4-4-4 fertilizer. It's an NPK ratio, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And 4-4-4 is balanced. Okay, and uh, it was a liquid that I used to recommend, and I really have tried and, and enjoyed using their solid. Their it's a more time release thing, uh, and with the other things I'm going to give you, you really don't need this to be liquid. But I'll tell you, I still use the liquid too, and I give the liquid to plants when I first put them out, especially in the colder time of the year before the biological activity gets going, because as a liquid fertilizer, those nutrients are immediately available to the plants. Now, you might wonder why this guy's asking about boron and magnesium and calcium, and I'm here talking first about NPK. If plants are healthy, and if soil's healthy, in general, macronutrients will look after themselves. Because there's probably more silicon, boron, magnesium, manganese, calcium in a handful of the worst soil then plants need to exist on 100 square feet of it. It's there because they need very small amounts of it. The problem is they can't get to it. And the first thing we need so that plants can get to it is strong plants. Strong plants, one. Healthy soil, two. We have healthy soil. Then we're going to have all the little soil organisms there. The plants are going to create exudates. The exudates are going to attract a particular soil organism. And it's going to come over, and it's going to attach itself to the root system, and it's going to say to the plant, give me sugar. That's really what it's going to say. Give me cakes. Because basically the plant is going to create an exudate, and an exudate is a little bit of fat, some carbohydrate, and some sugar. And if you think about how you make a cake, sugar, flour, and some fat, right? So it's going to make a little cake that's specifically what that little organism wants. And it's going to say to the organism, I know what you are. It's almost this way. It's, it's freaky crazy when you think about how it works. I know what you are, and I need manganese. If you want your cake, 
give me manganese. I know you can get it. And the organism is going to give the, uh, the plant manganese or it's such that, that that organism craps manganese. And the plant will just give it the exudate because it knows once it consumes the exudate and craps, there's going to be manganese right there in a bioavailable form. And it's going to take it up. So we're going to start with NPK. Next, we're going to add Garrett Juice Plus, which is Garrett Juice Plus Fish. And that's a 1.5, 2.2, 1 1.5 uh, liquid, uh, basically concentrate. And we're going to apply that as a foliar feed to our plants, meaning we're going to use about, I think it's about a tablespoon to the gallon in a sprayer, and we're going to spray the plants when, it, when we put them out. We're going to spray, it with a, spray the plants with it about once every two weeks. It ain't going to hurt nothing. We're going to spray it in the morning or we're going to spray it in the evening. And if we do that, we're going to have half the battle won. Then we're going to move on to supplementing our micronutrients. Now, I'm going to link to the article, and the article has links to all of these products on, on Amazon. So you can find them. If you want to buy them locally, fine, but I just want you to see them. Okay, there are four primary macronutrients that are most often the deficiency problem in 95% of plants that show deficiencies that aren't NPK-related. They are calcium and magnesium, and they are zinc and iron. And the, the funny thing is, I put them in that order because that's how they're needed. Your plant can't take up calcium without magnesium, and it can't take up magnesium without calcium. They have to have them together. And it can't take up iron without zinc, and it can't take up zinc without iron. They have to have them together or they can't take them up. So I have a product called Hydro Organics Earth Juice CalMag Plant Food. And I have one called um, the Zinc and Iron one is Liquinox. Iron Zinc Chelated Solution. These are both organic products. Um, you don't need a lot of them. And what you can do is you can put them right in your sprayer with your Garrett juice and spray your plants with them, and you will never have a deficiency in those four macronutrients. If we never have a deficiency in those four macronutrients, and we never have a deficiency in NPK, then 99.9% of problems we could possibly have will be solved and the plants will find the other macronutrients they needed in the soil. However, your soil can be deficient in macronutrients. So I recommend that you use something called azomite, which is a rock dust, and green sand. And I recommend you use both. And when you're looking at any kind of rock mineral, mineral nutrients, here's, here's some basic rules. If your soil is very light colored, you're looking for rock dust minerals that are very dark colored. Okay, if your soils, like your native soils, your subsoils are very dark colored, then you want light colored. Now, it's not 100%, but it's pretty good. But if we use azomite and green sand, we get a dark and a light. That's going to give us every macronutrient we need, and we're just going to sprinkle that across our, our, our gardens. The reason that I started, though, because I could just say, you know what, all you need is some rock minerals. Go out and get some good rock dust and some green sand and some lava sand, the three of those. Till that into your soil and go on with life. You'll have all the nutrients you need. Well, the problem is the nutrients you need might already be there. It may just be there's not enough biological activity for your plant to get to them or your plants aren't healthy enough to get to them. I laugh when I see people with pathetic-looking peppers. You see the pepper plant, it's, just, it's three months into the season. That thing should be friggin' a foot and a half tall and should be bushy and green and bright. And it's kind of a little bit yellow with a little bit of chlorosis. And it's not, it's just not, and, and the, you say, why don't you give the damn thing some fertilizer? Oh, you never feed peppers. If you feed peppers, they get really big and don't produce peppers. Really? Because I had six and a half foot tall jalapeno peppers that one branch fell off it 
and you picked it up, and it was four and a half pounds. The one branch was four and a half pounds of peppers on it. Don't give me that. Can you over-fertilize peppers with too much nitrogen and get excessive bushy growth and not pepper production? Yeah, but you got to try real hard. you got to try, like what I just said, it's not going to do that. So again, what you want is a good uh, organic fertilizer, a good foliar feed, and if you think you need it, supplement with a foliar feed of calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc. And I have not been using the iron and zinc and calcium magnesium this year. But I'm watching my plants. And any plant that I see start to develop anything that looks like a deficiency, we'll hit it with that see if it goes away. But, but rock dust, lava sand, azomite, those things take care of all the nutrient needs you want. And the other thing I'm a big believer in, I don't have in this article, again, I should probably update it and, uh, and add it, but that is um, molasses. Whether you get a liquid concentrate molasses and do a soil drench in it, or what I prefer to do and buy dry horticultural molasses and spread it out like a fertilizer. Uh, especially if you pull back mulch or you do it before you mulch, you spread out the, the molasses, and you put that over top of it, you're feeding soil organisms. And you put your soil on this regiment, and I'm telling you, your plants will blow you away. They'll, you won't, you'll never see anything grow the way that, that, that you will with this. And this is the, this is the difference between like Miracle Grow and, you know, 14, 14, 14 and stuff like that, your commercial fertilizers and stuff. You have to keep using the same amount of that every year. And you end up having to use more and more over time. And your soil becomes more and more depleted. If you're using this type of a regimen, not even necessarily the products, these types of products, your soil will get healthier and healthier and healthier, and you'll have to use less and less and less. If you've noticed, I said, I'm not using the iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium. Well, why not? Because the biological activity in the soil has now caught up with things. And remember, I start, I'm not talking about gardening here. I'm talking about trees and bushes, and I started out with a dadgone desert. I mean, really, those of you who have seen this land before I started, and I, that's part of how I got these plants through it. I had this big sprayer. I put a trailer behind my my uh, tractor, it's about 30 gallons, and I put a gallon of garret juice in there and a whole bottle of freaking each of the mineral supplements and a, a bottle of the fertilizer, and I drive around with it tied, you know, hooked up to the battery on the tractor and spray every damn tree around here, not every two weeks, but like four times a year for the first couple of years and still had losses, but look at everything now. And, and that's all that it is, is a good organic program. You don't even call it permaculture, just a good organic program. Again, I'll link to the uh, the article on this in uh, in the show notes today on the Nine Mile Far blog. Jack, how do you put your parents in a retirement home? Um, I know it's hard, and I know you've been through some of it. Um, I, I've, my parents are declining, and I feel like um, they're about 80, and I just feel like I'm always behind, meaning I'm always too slow to act. I was too slow to act to get someone to come in and help them a few times a week, too slow to get them a cleaning lady, and, you know, I'm just now looking at retirement homes, and I feel like they need to move immediately, but I just, they live on the other side of the country. I go there about every other month, and I try to help them out, but um, I just, you know, I'm just trying to deal with this. And I guess, you know, the other issue is that my mom's probably worse off physically, meaning she has trouble walking. Um, I mean, she does walk every day, but she walks very slowly. My dad, on the other hand, is pretty good physically, but has Alzheimer's. So 
and you know, yeah, it's good days and bad days, um, and, you know, but I guess sometimes it's a pretty bad day, and um, you know, maybe my mom's just not like my mom can't keep up with him. So like, if he decides he needs to go somewhere, you know, walking, he's gonna go. And so, anyways, it's it's hard. Um, but they're just having more trouble cooking, cleaning, taking care of themselves. They're still doing it, um, but it's just getting hard. And so, you know, these places are very expensive. We looked at one place that was about 4000 a month or so, and they could pay it, um, and it seems all right. Um, but, you know, there's other places that I guess are nicer in terms of better food maybe and uh, more activities, but they require like a $700,000, you know, buy-in or a $400,000 buy-in or something like that, and they only seem a little bit nicer, and that would be the majority of my parents' money. So, um, you know, they're, they're capital. So anyways, Jack, I'm just trying to figure this out. Any Any insights you have would be welcome, and this is in the Portland, Oregon area, if that makes a difference. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, this is a very difficult decision, and there's only so much help that I can give you. I, I, you know, This is one of those things like, how is this related to preparedness? Man, we all need to be prepared for this, uh, because not all of us will have to do this, but many of us will. Many more of us are going to have to face this decision in our lives as children of aging parents and as aging parents ourselves eventually, uh, then, then, then we will have to face the, the armies of, of Armageddon. Okay? It, it's a, it's a absolute certainty that this will touch you in some way, whether it's directly or indirectly through a spouse or, a, you know, a, a relative that's close to you or something like that, or even just a best friend. Um, so here's the, the blunt reality to this. With your mother, I don't know exactly what she's going to need, but with your father, it is absolutely the case that this is going to eventually have to be done. If you lived next door and if you were willing to take on the concept of having a late-stage Alzheimer's person in your home and providing them full-time care, that might be an option. That might be an option. In your situation, it's not an option. And as Alzheimer's advances, it gets to a point where they are a danger to themselves. And I can tell you that if you time it right, and it's it's hard to do, but if you time it right and you take someone with late stage or even you know what they would call moderate to severe Alzheimer's and put them into a home, they don't even know they're in a home. They don't know. The day we took my father-in-law was very, very hard for me because I had seen him degrade, and I thought, I thought exactly what I just told you would be the case. And I, I came to doubt it very seriously because this is what happened. We went to go get him, and it was pretty early in the morning, and we expected to have to get him out of bed and all. He was up. He was dressed. He was having a good day, if you want to call it that. And right when we told him that he had to go with us, we, we lied to him because you can't tell. I, I know this sounds horrible. You can't tell them the truth, though if you make that mistake, you can come back in a day and they won't remember it. I, I, I'm dead serious, okay? Uh, but we told him he had to go into some rehab, that he had had some problems with falling and all, and his doctor wanted him to go. And I told him that I made his wife a promise when she died and that uh, that I would always take care of everybody and what chance did you have of not going if your doctor says you need to go. So he resigned himself and we went. 
But right before we took him, right before we told him he had to go to rehab, he said to us, just don't move me. Talk about being punched in the stomach. He knew what was going on for that moment. Well, we got him there. and when, By the time we got there, he didn't even know that he was going to rehab. He didn't know where he was going. And um, when they told him he was going to be staying there for a while, he said, what, you're lying to me? And he got almost violent. And like two little girls grabbed him by the arm, and they walked him out. And they said, let's go for a walk, Mr. Fred. And by the time they lapped him one time around the place, which is actually a pretty good walk around the place we had him in, um, he got back. He wanted to know where his girlfriend was, who he hadn't seen in years. Um, he said she was just here and she left. He was up at the front desk asking for her. Um, we sat down for lunch, and then the lady that was, you know, probably you know younger than myself and my wife that was there, like as our liaison, sat down with us for a minute, and got up and left. And he was convinced she was his girlfriend, and she always does this to him. And it kind of resonated with us. Hey, we're doing the right thing. And once they kind of got their bearings on, you know, we're going to look after him, and they've got his room set up and all. They said, what you guys need to do is we're going to take him over here. There's a guy playing music. He's gonna he's gonna like get into this music because that's what they do. And just don't say nothing. Just leave and don't come back for a couple days. And that's what we did. And it, for, for memory care, they're one of the more expensive places. But if there's any way it can be afforded, Silverado is the, is the company that we use. I don't know if they're in your area or not, but they were the best we looked at. And there were places we looked at. I'm like, I can't do this to this guy. I can't put him in there. And fortunately, he had saved and he had invested and he had pretty good retirement. We were able to use that. To fund it. Here's the, the really hard thing. You know, we had to make a decision. How long do we defer this using in-home care before his, you know, and looking at the financial burn rate, knowing eventually has to go there, and trying to, I hate to put it this way, but can we put him in here at a point where we're pretty sure his money won't run out before he dies? Because then all you're left with is a nursing home. And the nursing homes that we're talking about are not your top of the line anything. You know, there were things like abuses happen and all. And, and your challenge is you have two parents like this. You have a father with Alzheimer's that if you put his wife in first, he's going to be alone and angry. And if you take him from her, then she's going to have no one to help her. But the, the truth is he, she's not going to be able to help her much longer. And I don't know what his stage of Alzheimer's is, but I'll tell you this. By the time you know for a fact that's what it is, it accelerates very, very quickly to a point where it becomes a problem. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. A year before we put my father-in-law into a facility, almost a year, um, my wife was in the vehicle with him, and it, she was bringing him here for Thanksgiving. And he answered a phone and had a conversation with the police department about my son and my daughter-in-law having a fight at his house, and they needed to go back there right away. You know what the problem was? There's no phone. There's no phone. He was talking to his hand, and he was completely convinced that it was the case, that it was true. And in dealing with Alzheimer's people, what I've learned from the people at Silverado is whatever they say, unless they want to jump off a building, go with it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. If they say, well, tomorrow you're going to do this, you just say, sure, even if it's completely preposterous and you're not going to do it. And what you're worried about is, well, tomorrow they're going to expect it. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're not going to remember. And there's no reason to have the argument and the fight and upset them. If they tell you to leave, they're angry, they want to, they want to beat everybody up or whatever, just walk away and come back in 30 minutes. They'll be happy again. And, and, and that, in general, is how we saw it work. Um... 
I, I think one of my biggest concerns for you is finance. Finance. You know, do they have long-term care, that type of thing? Um, because I think F Fred's was, when we put him in in the beginning, like 5,000, and by the time it was toward the end, it was like six because he needed more care. It's, a, it's a, you know, two people, 10 grand. I, I, how do you do it? You do it with love, and you do it with, you do it quickly. I don't mean you do it right away. I mean the day that you're going to do it, you do it quickly. You, we're going here to visit, and you go, and you let professionals take care of it from there. And if they're angry with you, then they're angry with you. And, and, and it may be more the case that you have to deal with that with your mother than your father. That said, there were couples at Silverado who the you know one spouse who didn't have Alzheimer's Uh, was paying a lot less and just basically sharing a room with the one that did, and it was actually very good for them. I don't know if you can find something like that, but I'm going to tell you that, like when you think of like a retirement home where they kind of just are, you know, looked after and taken care of, and the basics are provided, and they make sure they take their medicine and stuff like that. But they're basically, you know, just living. That that may work for your mother. It, 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 there's going to come a point where something like that does not work for your dad. It it doesn't, and I, and I say this, I, I hate the society we live in where old people are sent away for their final years. I, I really do. And I think if you there's any way you can avoid it where it's just they need help, they need somebody to look after them, stuff like that, then you should. But I'm telling you that trying to full-time take care of a person with late-stage Alzheimer's will flat destroy you. It, it will And the more you love them, the worse that it'll be for you. The harder it'll be for you. And it's it's a place where you need to to be willing to tap out. And, because what you have to understand is the professionals that do it at and there are good facilities where you know they are taken care of like they're supposed to be. They get to go home at the end of their eight hour shift. They get to go on with their life. That's why they can do it. And somebody else takes over. And then somebody else takes over. And even if you are local, you know, my wife was down there three days a week, and she would say, I feel guilty not going more. And he never knew she was how long she was gone, but she, he knew when she was there. And, and that's that's how you have to handle it. So you're in two different situations, and I feel for you. And, and I don't know what else I can say except, you know, try to find a balance and know that, especially with the memory care um There's a point where it has to be, or they're going to get into trouble. They're going to get hurt. They're going to hurt somebody. Um, they're going to hurt themselves. Uh, they're going to get lost and not know where they are. They're going to get in a car. Uh, a good friend of mine, a, a good friend of my son's, uh, ended up in a hospital for three months because a man with Alzheimer's got in his car, drove down the street with no lights on, got on the highway going the wrong way, and hit him head on. There, there's a point where you have to call it, and, and, and please be willing to do that when, when necessary. And be at peace with the need. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Troy in Denton, Texas. Something I heard earlier today I just had to tell you about. Uh, every once in a while I hear something that makes me say, holy crap, we're living in 1984, or holy crap, we're living in Atlas Shrugged, or etc. So I'm, I'm at, ha at home doing some chores, and I hear my wife listening to one of her true crime TV shows that she likes to watch. And they said that they were administering a truth verification test. And I was like, what, what's 
set. And, well, the first time they said it, they said a truth verification test, also known as a lie detector test. And then for the rest of the show, they said a truth verification test. And all I can think is that is so right out of 1984. And, you know, was there some snowflake who, who was offended by the term lie detector test? Anyway, I just was interested to hear your take on that. Thanks, Jack, for all you do. Well, well, my take on it is the psychological programming component behind it is a hell of a lot worse than a snowflake being offended by it. I don't think it has anything to do with a snowflake being offended by it. I think it has to do with uh, convincing people that it's right that they should give up against uh, their constitutionally protected right against self-incrimination. So let's say I was accused of a crime, and I thought the state had a weak to no case, and I thought they had no real chance... Of, of prosecuting me, even bringing charges against me. And they said, well, Mr. Spirico, what we would like you to do, just as a formality, to clean, uh, clear your, your, your good name, is take a polygraph test. Hell no. Hell no. Because I know that those things aren't 100%. That's why they're not admissible in a court of law. Um, so you'd say, well, what do you have to lose? If you take it and you fail, they can't use it against you in court. Not yet, anyway, okay? Well... What it will absolutely do is convince the, the lead detective on the case, the prosecutor, whatever, that that I'm guilty. So then they're going to go out of their way, and, and they will justify things that even if they're corrupt, they, they, they might not do. Or they might do and go, I really, should I be doing it? They won't even question themselves if they're corrupt, if I fail a polygraph test, because they'll convince themselves that, that it's right. That, that, and that see that's a lot of times when you see these like Dateline episodes and stuff like that where somebody that clearly was innocent and, and you see a detective or a prosecutor that went out of their way to convict an innocent person what you have to understand is they hid evidence they uh, you know looked the other way on certain things or whatever because they actually believe they had the right person they believe that no matter how it looks they got the right person so they'll do whatever they can now to get the conviction to put them away. And that's the problem with giving the state so much power. Because that person has unlimited resources, and the person defending themselves does not. In fact, the resource they usually have is a public defender provided by the, the, the entity with unlimited resources that seeks to put them away. So that's a problem of in itself. But I think the bigger thing here is changing words and changing the definition of words. And that's, you know, in 1984, they actually had an official dictionary, and if a word wasn't in a dictionary, you couldn't use it. And it got smaller over time. They, they, they allowed the use of less and less words. Well, you see, the problem with Orwell's 1984, it was, it was dystopian to the extreme. If you look at, if you watch the movie, I think the movie even went darker. Like it, there was never, the sun never shined and it, you know, everything was bleak all the time and, and you could just tell like everything was like damp and you know, and they're trying to convey the mood that the author conveyed in the literary work. And we've become convinced that totalitarianism will look like that. Well, that's not how totalitarianism looks. One of the really great things I was tipped off to on this show was the uh, the Netflix uh, uh, series called The Man in the High Castle. And the premise of The Man in the High Castle is that the Germans and the Japanese won World War II. They took over the United States. The Japanese basically have the West Coast. The Nazis have the East Coast. And there's this thread of area in between in the mountains that's called the neutral zone that basically is just like a no-man's land. 
And I won't get into the specifics, but I, I think the most important part of it is, you know, you think Hitler and concentration camps and murder and mayhem and all that stuff. But the place that's all occupied by the Nazis, which is now mostly Americans who are living under Nazi rule and working for the Nazis, because it's been 20 years since the war ended, and it looks like the stereotypical perfect American society, here's the catchphrase, on the surface. All the women dress nice, just like the women in the, six, the, the early 60s did, late 50s did here in America. All, they're all housewives, they're involved in, in activities, all the houses are beautiful, kind of like they are today, you know, the McMansion thing, but of the time, and everything looks shiny and nice. More so than the Japanese sector, which is... Again, not what you usually think of, but so much so that when one of the characters ends up coming from the West Coast to the East Coast, even though she's against, she's actually an, you know like basically an espionage agent for the resistance, she's blown away with how beautiful everything is and how nice everything is until the reality sets in. If you're an enemy of the state, you're executed. And that's the totalitarianism that we're headed to. See, you, you don't abuse people in the streets except just long enough to get them into the car to take them to the cage. You abuse them in the cage. You find all kinds of reasons to put people in cages. And then in a fascist state, what you would do is, instead of just keeping the prisons under state control or allowing people to choose their own form of arbitration and justice, no, no, no. What you do is you have the state monopolize it, but they sell off the housing facilities to private industries who run the housing facilities for a profit. That's our prison system. And all of the nastiness that happens to people. And it's so easy for us to say, well, if they, if they would have committed crimes, they wouldn't be there. But look at some of the things people are in prison for. Not even jail. Prison for. Housed like animals. But yet... It all looks pretty nice out there, doesn't it? It all looks pretty good. And that's when people say, well, I don't understand how a man like Hitler comes to power and how how people in a, in a, a modern nation like Germany let it happen and went on about their lives and worked. It's because everything around them looked good. Those dirty people that went away, they were dirty people that caused problems and, and they were the reason that you, you were unemployed five years ago and now you have a job. And all wrapped up with that is changing words and the meaning of words and changing the ability of people to learn and understand and interpret things and dumbing down society so that that word does not mean what you think it means anymore that you keep using. To where people stand up for free speech and then throw a tantrum because somebody shows up that they don't want to see and commit violent actions against people so that that person can't speak or be heard. But they say they're for free speech. Not for free speech. They call themselves anti-fascist or something like that. Antifa? Antifa, they call themselves. We're supposed to be anti-fascist. They're literally fascists calling themselves anti-fascists. Because they don't know what the word means anymore. They don't know what the word fascist means. They, they use a word to be derogatory to other people, and yet they themselves are the true fascists. Using violence... And mass threat of violence to silence your opposition rather than speak to them and speak against them logically making a rational case for your viewpoint. It's the very definition of a fascist. So we have a fascist economy. 
And now we have fascists in the street saying they're against fascism. How long is it before we're full fascist? How long is it before we run a full... And they won't even recognize it. Why well, we've changed the definition of the word. Well, fascist, that's, that's Hitler. That's Hitler. I mean, the two things are synonymous. There's never been a fascist but Hitler. And all the other fascists that were around while he was around, but he was their fascist leader. So when we got rid of him, all fascism went away. Except for Donald Trump. He's a fascist. So now a businessman who runs for political office and happens to win, that his views you don't like as a fascist, which is equated to Hitler, that gassed millions of people. And, but running around in the streets using violence and thuggery, which is the very way that Hitler came to, to power, right? That's not fascism. Are you kidding me? Are you freaking kidding me? And they'll keep doing it. The political correct language is all about changing the meaning of words. It's all about changing the meaning of words. If you say something bad about somebody, it means whatever you said. If you say that person's an idiot, well, it means that person's an idiot. But now if you say that person's an idiot and they're a woman, well, it's attacking women. No, it's attacking a woman that happens to be an idiot. Or you tell somebody that's black that you're an idiot when they're talking like an idiot. Well, you're being racist. No, calling a person an idiot who is in fact an idiot is calling somebody an idiot. It's not racist. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin or their gender or their sex or their sexual preference. Not at all. Equality would be everybody gets treated the same. Now equality supposedly means what? Well, you can't say that about anybody except white men. You can say whatever you want about a white man, and it's okay, and it's taken about its face value, but if you say anything negative about anybody but a white male, unless he's gay, then it's okay. If he's cisgender white male, then no, can't do it. But everybody else, if you say anything negative about them, then it's you're a, you're a misogynist, you're an Islamophobe, you're a racist. This is the war of words. And unfortunately, our current generation of young people that are in the bastion of this bullshit, which is the university system, have been so dumbed down by our education system, it's easy to repro reprogram them to the meaning of words. And you know what young people say? 18, 19, 20, some of their favorite, favorite phrase. Well, it's not fair. It's not fair. I should have this. Everybody should have that. It's not fair. So you use that against them to program them to believe that everything can be fair. The world isn't fair. So we'll change the meaning of the word fair. Because what fair should mean is those that do the most receive the greatest benefit. And we change that word to mean fair means, well, everybody gets the same. This is the road we're on. It's a very dark and scary road. I think we can counter it, though, with logic, grammar, and rhetoric. That's why I do this show every day, and I hope it's part of why you tune in. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can support us is by doing your uh, shopping on, uh, on, uh, for, on, for your, your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. just takes you a page on my website. And there's a link there. You can go on over to Amazon, and you purchase whatever you're looking for on Amazon. doesn't matter what it is. And as the affiliate that referred you to the site, we get a, a credit for it. And I review items every day on Amazon.com as well for you. Today I have a, uh, what we call an encore item. And that means I have reviewed this item before, and basically I've just resurfaced the review to the top of the heap. It's the Camp, Camp Chef Ranger 2 Tabletop Stove. It is awesome. What is this thing? It's a little propane stove. It's actually as big as like two burners on, on a range, but it's pretty small. It's only about 10 inches, 11 inches tall, 
and it, you set it on a tabletop or what have you. You hook up a propane tank to it. You turn it on. You cook with it. Well, there's a lot of things that do that. Well, what makes this one so special? It's the quality and the power. I have a high-end gas range um, because I love to cook. And I'm talking, I think our, our range was like $1,200 bucks. And it was like one of the one of the things when we moved to this house they didn't have was was good appliances. And when we went to get a refrigerator slash freezer and a washer a dishwasher and a stove, I said, you know what, we're getting warranted top of the line stuff because I like to cook and we you know keep our food fresh and all that stuff. And my wife always wanted a really big you know top and bottom uh, freezer where the freezer's on the bottom. We got the double door on the bottom with a little one and the big one and Two doors open for the refrigerator. We just we said we're gonna we're gonna spend the money and we're gonna do this. We've saved up. We can afford it. We made money selling our last house. Let's let's make this one of the upgrades we do right away. And uh, the reason I, I tell you that is because that stove is awesome. I mean, I've had gas stoves in my life before, but this thing when I cook, I mean, I have precision control and I have power. When I want to get a, a cast iron skillet really hot, man, I can get it really hot. This little Ranger stove is not quite to the level of my $1,200 range, but for 100 bucks, it's damn close. So it is a shit-at-the-fan tool. If the, the power goes off or whatever, you need to cook out on the back porch, you can cook with it. It's a camping tool. It's not a back backpack camping tool. I, I use mine with the 20-pound uh, tanks, and that's what it's designed to hook up to, though they do have a small bottle adapter for it. I have one just in case I need that for more of the typical camping thing, but it's pretty heavy. Uh, I have a nice little carry bag that comes with it as well. Um, but it's like for truck camping. It's great for that. And I'm going to be doing some truck camping at the Granddaddy's Gun Club first meetup on the 7th of May, Corsicana, Texas. Love to have some of you guys come there. We still have some positions open, I think. Uh, you can find a link in the show notes today about that. Uh, so I'll be taking mine down to cook my breakfast and stuff like that out at the range. And it's great for that. If you don't have a gas stove like I do, you know, Saturday mornings cook breakfast out on your deck with this thing. It'll change your your view of cooking breakfast. Um, and the next time you get an opportunity to buy a house, you'll be looking for one with gas service or where you can put a propane tank in. Because once you cook with gas, you will not go back. Because electric is so, so pathetic in comparison. It's just a great tool. Uh, it was a top 50 selling item on Amazon for us last year. Uh, so I'm bringing it back around again. And again, it does it for under $100. Bucks. It's, it's just really fantastic. Check it out again. It's the uh, Camp Chef Ranger 2 Tabletop Stove. Uh, next up, I do want to remind you guys that if you like the work we do and you want to support us, another way you can do that through Patreon. You can learn about the uh, the ways that you can uh, support us through Patreon just by going to the survivalpodcast.com. You look in the far right-hand column where all our sponsor ads all You'll see one that says support my work on Patreon. Click and go take a look, and I, I won't say much more other than this. I'm kicking around doing a higher tier support level on Patreon. I don't know how much yet, but one of the things that I, I would be doing would be uh, at least once a month a conference call, probably for 90 minutes with people that want to discuss business issues. I would have to limit the number of people, which means I have to charge enough to make it worth doing. I don't want to have you know 300 people on a conference call. It doesn't, it you know, it it, it doesn't let me actually help people. I'm thinking 50 ish. 
Um, if you'd be interested in that, drop me an email, jacketthesurvivalpodcast.com, and let me know at least you'd be interested in that. Uh, to get, let me gauge it. I'm trying to decide whether I, whether I want to add another thing to my life to do or not. Because if I do a 90-minute conference call once a month, first one's going to be 90 minutes. The next one it is going to be hours of work because all of the information that I take in the first one, I'm going to be thinking about for the next one to be bringing back recommendations and things like that. So, I mean, we're probably talking somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 to $50 a month for people who want to do that. Uh, and those that don't make the calls, all the calls will be recorded and available to them through Patreon. Real quick on Patreon, one thing I want to point out, if if it's just me, then this doesn't mean anything. But if you're the kind of person, like you have a half a dozen YouTube people or podcasts or whatever that use Patreon, the app consolidates all their creations for you into one place. And it's kind of cool. So I'll just leave it at that. But you can check that out. Now let's talk about the song of the day. Song of the Day Today was one that I had heard plenty of times back in the day, but uh, I forgot all about this song. I mean, when I said, I'm like, oh, yeah, that song. And I'm like, boy, that's probably going to be controversial for some people uh, when they hear the opening lines of it because it talks about a friend of, uh, of Neil Peart who's from Rush who is the uh, who was gay. And it's very clear that's what he's talking about. And uh, when I looked up the song facts on it, I, I really was like, this is great, because now I don't have to explain anything. I'm just going to read a uh, uh, some stuff on this. These are both from Neil Peart. Um, he says, I had a lot of reflections over the last couple of years about the nature of heroism and what a role model is supposed to be and the differences between the two. That thought manifested itself on a song on a new album called Nobody's Hero. A role model is obviously a better, very positive example of what can be accomplished, and it's what I think with, with all humanity, humility and pride. Rush has been a good role model for other bands. And he also said, if people think that discussing homosexuality is controversial, then they've been living in a rock. He said this in 93, by the way. Nobody's hero will probably polarize people, even though the AIDS issue is only a small part of the lyrical theme, and people will probably jump to conclusions. That's their problem. I don't worry about whether it's brave or foolish or whatever. When things affect you, you talk about them, and it comes out in your music. You let it fly. I never had the slightest idea that it can be interpreted as controversial until someone pointed it out to me after we'd finished the record. I guess I've always worked in the music business, which is a very tolerant environment. And it says, The boy in the song is an old friend of Neil's that he met while in London in 1971. He used to work with him. Then years later, he heard that his friend had died. Let me give you some of the lyrics. Uh, opening stanza. I knew he was different in his sexuality. I went to his parties as a straight minority. It never seemed a threat to my masculinity. He only introduced me to a wider reality. As the years went by, we drifted apart. And when I heard he was gone, I felt a shadow cross my heart. But he's nobody's. Hero. Saves a drowning child. Cures a wasting disease. Hero. Lands the crippled airplane. Solves the great mysteries. Hero. Not the handsome actor who plays a hero's role. Hero, not the glamour girl who'd love to sell her soul. Is anybody buy, if anybody who's buying, nobody's hero. And uh, he also, I'll give you the next stanza, and I won't read all the rest of it, just the next stanza about the next person. I didn't know the girl, but I knew her family. All their lives were shattered in a nightmare of brutality. They, they try to carry on to bear the agony, to try to hold some faith in the goodness of humanity. 
As the years went by, we drifted apart. When I heard she was gone, I felt a shadow cross my heart. But she's nobody's hero. Heroes are a voice of reason against the howling mob. Hero, the pride of purpose in an unrewarding job. And it goes on back into the concepts of what we look at as heroes, actors and stuff like that. And what this song's really about, it, it, it really has nothing to do with, with the fact that one of the characters in, in the song, based on a real person, was gay. It has to do with everyday associations and the people around us that actually do the things that are heroic. And yet the media and the state have so idolized the mundane that we've created false heroes. You know, every te teachers are heroes. No, I'm sure some teachers are. But teachers are people that do a job. Soldiers are heroes. I'm sure some of them are. That doesn't mean every... I was a soldier. I don't consider myself a hero. And if you do for, for that part of my life, I'll tell you flatly, I've done more to help people in the last nine years of doing this show than I ever did as a soldier. And honestly, a lot of the work that I did as a soldier was relief work, and we did help people. It doesn't make me a hero. It makes me somebody that had a job and did their job. That's all that it is. Heroes are the people that save people at the risk of their own lives. Heroes are the people that make a difference in people's lives and never ask to be recognized. And we've perverted the meaning of that word. I am astounded at how well these songs have fit these shows since John Adams started picking them out. There is no possible way he could have known that my last segment today would be about changing the meaning of words. Because there's, I didn't know that until about three hours ago when I chose the calls for today's show. And I didn't put it at the end because of this song, because I hadn't even looked at the list to find out what today's song was until after I put them together. It's almost like when you're doing the right things, things just kind of come together. When you hear the word hero, make sure it's being applied appropriately. When you hear any word, make sure it's being applied appropriately. Because when it's not, that's when you know The programming is going on. And once you know the programming is going on, it doesn't work on you any longer. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I knew he was different in his sexuality. I went to his parties as a straight minority. Never seen the threat to my masculinity He only introduced me to a wider reality As the years went by, we drifted apart When I heard that he was gone, I felt the shadow cross my heart But he's nobody's hero Save the drowning child Shattered in a nightmare of brutality
Tried to carry on, tried to bear the agony. Tried to hold some faith in the goodness of humanity.